We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. It was really helpful, I thought, to to look at the context of each section because reading them was kind of it's this way with with Doctrine and Covenants in general. You just read it for what it is, and sometimes you're like, where is this coming from? You know, like what what's the situation here? And when we kind of fill that in with here's what was happening, and this is the response to this question, or you know, this is what may have brought to pass this revelation. It makes a lot more sense after that, especially this first one. It's interesting because it seemed like in section 67, in the Joseph Smith Revelations book, it's talking about how there were several elders that were kind of questioning things. They may be even questioning Joseph Smith a little bit. And he says, uh, Revelation explained because of fears in the hearts of the elders they they weren't getting a spiritual conviction of the prophet and of the revelations. And I thought that was interesting because what what kind of fears is it talking about? You know, I think the verse is, verse 3, Ye endeavored to believe that ye should receive the blessing which was offered unto you. But behold, verily I say unto you that there were fears in your hearts, and verily this is the reason that ye did not receive. And I was thinking, what fears is it talking about? And looking at the footnote didn't really help because it just says topical guide fearful, you know? <laughs> But like, what were they, what were they fearing? And part of me thought, you know, these people have sacrificed a lot to be where they are. They've given up a lot. They've traveled, they've moved their entire families, they've sold farms. And there could be this idea of what if this is all not real? What if this is all not true? And I have just thrown everything out the window. Yeah, I think likewise, one thing that was interesting to me was but up to this point, they weren't privy to a lot of these revelations that Joseph Smith received. And this is kind of the beginning of, let's create this book of commandments. Let's gather these revelations and share them. Uh, some of them were, were shared through the local newspaper, through right. uh, various methods. But it wasn't compiled in a way that we have it now. Like us so far going in this course may have had may be having more insight into the the more of a con, more of a continuous understanding of what the lord is continuously revealing to his saints and to them in that time it may have felt kind of sporadic yeah i was just trying to put myself in their shoes because this this revelation clearly is talking about i thought verse five was really interesting yeah where it says, you know, um, in verse four, it kind of begins. Now I, the Lord, given to you a testimony of the truth of these commandments, which are lying before you. Your eyes have be, been upon my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr. 
and his language you have known, and his imperfections you have known, and you have sought in your heart's knowledge that you might express beyond his language, this you also know. Well, I don't understand it completely, I'll be honest. I don't know what it's saying, but one is, <clears throat> it's very obvious that the Lord knows that Joseph Smith has shortcomings, um, and, he, and he's not perfect. And a lot of the strife and issues that people have or will have or having <laughs> is when we see a leader and they are not perfect or leave up to our live up to our expectations. Later on in verse in section 69 or 70, the Lord is going to tell us more about, well, when these leaders that have been ordained speak by the spirit, it is the mind and the will and the and the voice of the Lord, yeah. you know, and so I kind of thought about that coupled with this. There is a differentiation you have to make when when a servant or a person is flawed and not complete and has strengths and also has weaknesses. And then there is a person when they act in the, their calling and the Holy Ghost is testifying and, and guiding them that they now are more than just a mortal person. Yeah, I, I think, especially in this instance, there were people that were questioning maybe Joseph Smith as a prophet and maybe him being the right person because, you know, he's saying, you know, his language you have known, his imperfections you have known, and you've sought in your heart's knowledge you might express beyond his language, this also you know. You're trying, you're asking, is this guy the right person? And Joseph Smith wasn't extremely educated. Um, he did not speak well. He did not write well. And I'm sure that, you know, if you're someone who maybe does speak well or write well and you travel and you meet this person for the first time and you've joined this movement and you're kind of looking at him like, whoa, this is this is the guy? I was expecting this like dynamic leader person, you know, that never says anything wrong, that everyone understands and gets behind all the time. And he's different than I expected. And maybe some people were starting to question that. And the, the best part is the next two verses, next three verses, really. And verse six, now ye seek out of the book of commandments, even the least that that is among them and appoint him that is most wise among you. Or if there be any among you that shall make one like unto it, then ye are justified in saying that ye do not know that they are true. But if ye cannot make one like unto it, ye are under condemnation. If ye do not bear record that they are true. He's basically saying, all right. Um, find whoever you think is the wise, wisest among you and see if you can write a revelation like are found in the Book of Commandments. And you'll see um, when you don't succeed, right, that that's why these are actual revelations from a prophet's voice, because it's not just a guy making stuff up. Um, and it's also not uh, a guy getting uh, fortunate in saying the right things at the right time. You know, this is he's saying my words through himself. And when you try to do it yourself, you'll find that you can't do it. Yeah, it's it's very, it reminded me a little bit of, uh, who was it, Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Yeah. <laughs> when it was the, they, they, they set up a burnt offering and say, okay, ask your God to send out the fire and burn this and nothing happened. And then he grabbed this stuff and he's like, pour water on it, pour, yeah. pour even more water and watch this, you know. So it's not uncharacteristic of the Lord to, and he's not saying these things like, 
like we would say to them, like, right. oh, let me prove you, see if you can dunk better. Right, right. You know, it's more like, like when he says in the scriptures, prove me herewith if right. I won't open up a window and give you a blessing that there won't be room for you to receive it. You know, that kind of thing. Um, I thought verse 10 was a really good in, because he kind of just corrected them and corrected them pretty, pretty specifically and in some sense could be harshly. But then 10, he says, um, again, verily I say to you that it is your privilege and a promise I give unto you that have been ordained unto this ministry, that inasmuch as you strip yourself from jealousy and fear and humble yourself before me, for ye are not sufficiently humble. The veil shall be rent and you shall see me and know that I am, not with the carnal, neither with the natural mind, but with the spiritual. And then he goes a little bit into, you know, how in the history and how people have seen God and how you need to be changed to see him. Like, but I thought to myself, one, maybe some of the desire of these people to be in Joseph's seat was also to know what Joseph knew. Right. And he's saying, you in the ministry, you can have, you can know me by doing your, the ministry correctly. It may not be with your natural eyes it may not be with your physical eyes it may be with your spiritual eyes but nonetheless let me explain to you why either one of those isn't greater than another and then he tells and then in the middle of that he tells them very specifically you got to get rid of jealousy fear and humble yourself and oftentimes we we think about you should be humble as a or don't have fear or don't be jealous as like an external thing towards like people not of the faith, about celebrities, about, you know, someone we see that can buy a huge house and we can't. But he's saying this amongst yourselves, amongst you disciples, amongst you people ordained to the ministry. Don't be jealous of each other. Of course, you shouldn't be jealous of those other examples I gave as well. But but it's very specifically, don't be jealous of Joseph. Don't be jealous of each other. And if you do that, you'll get the same outcome you get to know God himself. You know? I think that is that applies to all of us too. It applies to a primary teacher. It applies to a missionary. It applies to the chorister. You know, if you do this to the best of your ability, you too can know, know him. This is not what the carnal, neither natural mind. So it's not like you're going to physically see him, but you'll know him in a spiritual way. You'll gain a testimony that he exists, that he is aware of you, that he is there. And I think that, that goes for pretty much every calling. In verse 14, the very beginning, let not your minds turn back. And when ye are worthy in mine own due time, ye shall see and know that which is conferred upon you by the hands of my servant Joseph Smith. Let not your minds turn back. There's going to be a tendency. There may be a temptation to go back to things you used to do. There may be a, an idea of let's, you know what, this is too much. Let's go back to New York. Let's go back to Ohio. Let's go back to our old life. It was simpler. It, it was different, but we weren't as happy or, or maybe, but this is getting too confusing or it's demanding too much from us or it's too, many, too much change in our lives. You know, I, I think of the people who I helped um, on my mission to find the gospel. And a lot of them made some pretty drastic changes in their lives. And a lot of them were very, very tempted not long after that to kind of go back. You know, their family saying, we don't, we don't, 
see you on Sunday mornings anymore. You don't come to church with us or you say you don't do certain things on Sunday or just just random other things about everyday life that had to change when they became members of the church. They don't they don't go drinking anymore, you know, stuff like that. And there was a temptation to go back, to be drawn back into that old stuff. And the Lord's saying, you know, let not your minds turn back. I know it could happen. I know you maybe even sometimes want to make it happen. But don't don't fall for that. It's short term. The long term is is if you endure. This reminds me what we were talking about of um, how we get to see the Savior and know that he is. Uh, in Matthew chapter 16, 16 through 18, when when the Lord is speak, speaking to Peter, it starts out with him saying, "Who these people say that I'm this person, but who do you say I am? And, and Peter says in verse 16, he says, Simon Peter answered him, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered unto him, saying, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, And I also say unto thee that thou, Peter, upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that rock is the rock of revelation. And I think that's really interesting because even those that were physically there with the Savior, many of them missed the testimony that he was the Son of God. And that testimony still had to come to Peter through the Holy Ghost and through Heavenly Father. And sometimes I think we forget that that process is the same process now for us, that we don't, that sometimes we think, oh, if I could see, I, you know, it's the same thing as, as uh, what happened to Thomas, you know. Yeah, there's a, a name um, in verse 9. The Lord refers to Heavenly Father as the Father of Lights. And I thought that was really cool. And then in the footnotes, it gives links to three different scriptures in Doctrine and Covenants to kind of talk about what that means, the Father of Lights. That which is of, and this is in uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 5024, that which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light which groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. And then in Doctrine and Covenants 84:45, for the word of the Lord is truth, and whatsoever is truth is light, and whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. And then DNC 88:49, the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Nevertheless, the day shall come when ye shall comprehend even God, being quickened in Him and by Him. And I don't know of anywhere else in the Scriptures it refers to Him as the Father of Lights. I just really like that because it's a very graphic way to talk about how the spirit brings not only physical brightness but also like understanding and how that brings a when when we think about light we think about happiness we think about energy we think about joy when you think about darkness you think about the opposite and so to call him father of lights is just a very great way to describe it yeah and there are several words that i find in the doctrine covenants that can be like interchangeable Mm-hmm. like light and intelligence you know uh light and virtue you know there's several things and and you can see how especially i mean especially in the pearl of great price when he speaks about you know when when moses sees all the intelligences i don't know it 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 just fits you know the the name it's also interesting because with with christ there are many accounts in the scriptures where he's referenced as the Redeemer, you know, the Lamb of God, the firstborn, 
the son of man, you know, and all of these names, they're all referencing him, but also referencing kind of in, adds like more detail to his role, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the, 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 un, the, the lamb of God, you know, the, you know, the Holy one of Israel, you know, there's a lot of, and the, there aren't very many where we hear about the father, you know, but this is one of those examples where the father of lights, which is kind of cool. Yeah. In section 68, he's talking about specific individuals, Orson Hyde and Luke Johnson, Lyman Johnson, and William E. McClellan. And in verse 80, he tells them that they basically went to the prophet kind of wanting to know what does the Lord want of us? And the revelation said, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature acting in the authority which I have given you, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And so he tells them, you know, you're going, you should go and preach. Then he tells him later in uh, verse 14, there remain hereafter in the due time of the Lord, other bishops to be set apart unto the church to minister even according to the first. Wherefore they shall be high priests who are worthy and they shall be appointed by the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood, except they be literal descendants of Aaron. And he's basically saying like, I know Edward, Par Edward Partridge is your bishop now, but just so you know, in the future, we will have lots of bishops. And this is kind of let me kind of establish give you a little idea of what who these bishops will be you know uh, they need to be worthy they need to have melchizedek priesthood they need to um have different experiences in ministering in the church um and it's pretty interesting then it kind of gets a little bit strange in my mind when we start talking about the literal descendants of aaron um because <laughs> i remember having read this in the past but when i was reading it this time I was like, in, in verse 16, if they be literal descendants of Aaron, they have a legal right to the bishopric. <laughs> and if they are firstborn among the sons of Aaron, for the firstborn holds the rights, the right to the presidency over this priesthood, and the keys or authority of the same. I I thought the same thing when I read that. I'm like, why would this, this is so specific, and are we going to run across a lot of these uh, literal descendants? And then I, I was thinking, what is a literal descendant? Because, like, what does that mean? Because, like, for me, my patriarchal blessing, it tells me I'm a literal descendant of Lehi, you know, and Nephi and, and so forth. And I'm like, what is that? It's not, it can't be completely blood, because I've done that whole DNA thing, and I'm about 70% native, <laughs> but it's not, like, where is the line of, like, literal descendant, you know? And then And then when I was thinking more about this chapter, I thought maybe the Lord is trying to teach and merge two two ways of thinking one is the um old testament uh examples about priesthood and now the new uh revelation on furthering understanding the priesthood and the link between the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood and Sometimes it feels like there are stages in the histories where there was one or the other, and sometimes could have been both. It it seems to me obvious that in the Book of Mormon they had the Melchizedek priesthood. It seems like in the Old Testament they mostly had the Aaronic priesthood, and then there were a few that maybe had the Melchizedek priesthood or the higher priesthood before Melchizedek was around, right? And um, and so I I, I kind of wonder if the Lord put this in there to kind of help them understand that although this is 
like a literal function of this tribe, this other priesthood can, has the right to officiate in all the lower priesthood ordinances as well. So whether you find a literal descendant and good luck with that, or you are a high priest, you have the same responsibility, you know? I don't know. That's kind of my take, but... Yeah, I, I think there's... I think there's a lot of truth to that. It just seems weird to me because we don't really ever hear about things like this other than like the Levites. The Levites are the temple worker types. But it's funny because I, I called my dad and I asked him like, what is this about? What What's the deal with this? Because he is a bishop right now and I figure, hey, might as well go see what a bishop says. And <laughs> he was like, yeah, that's, it is kind of weird. And I said, but the only time I've ever heard about like specifically calling out a group of people for a calling are the Levites. But this isn't like your your zodiac sign, you know, oh, you're you're the ox. So that you, you're supposed to do this thing, you know. And he was like, well, it's pretty clear there that literal descendants, for whatever reason of Aaron, they have a claim to the bishopric. But I think in verse 21, it kind of clarifies things a little bit. Uh, it says, by virtue of the decree concerning their right of the priesthood, descending from father to son, they may claim their anointing if at any time they can prove their lineage or to ascertain it by revelation from the Lord under the hands of the above-named presidency. So here's the thing. If someone wants to go do all the genealogy necessary to prove on paper that they're a literal descendant of Aaron, I guess they could have some sort of claim to become bishop. I, my dad was like, look, if I were a stake president and someone came to me and was like, I'm a literal descendant of Aaron, here's all my paperwork, I can prove it, I, I want to be bishop. He's like, I would say, okay, well, hang tight. Um, you're not needed right now. Maybe you will be bishop someday. <laughs> and he also said there's probably a lot of people who have been bishop who have no idea whether they're descendants of Aaron or not, and they are. What, what I pointed out was sometimes there's people that um, maybe they don't have a ton of experience or they don't, they're not kind of natural leaders, but they're called to be bishops. And maybe that's why. Maybe it's the Lord saying, you know what? You have this descendancy and you're called to do this for that reason. Yeah. I, I also think in the Old Testament, it does spell out almost the exact same thing the Lord is saying here about yeah. the descendants of Aaron. And I often wonder in those days when a lot of, one of the things that makes Joseph Smith unique when he went to the grove to pray, the answer that none of these churches were the Lord's, you know, because we know that one, you must be called of God. You And, and with the priesthood, no man taketh this honor unto themselves, but him who was called of God, right? Meaning, you can't just say, hey, I felt like you. it has to be from God and it has to be by the laying on of hands. It's not It's not verbally given. It must be passed on. And in this case, it says from your father to their firstborn son. Right. It's pretty specific about that process. And maybe that would have been the intention had it had not the Israelites fallen away. Right. And had they not fallen away, they would have accepted Christ and Christ would have given them the higher priesthood. And that's what he came to do. One of his roles was also to fulfill the law of Moses and to introduce the gospel law, you know, the higher law. And so 
I wonder, I'm saying that to say, I wonder if some of these members had these questions in their hearts because something that happens later on after Joseph Smith is killed mm. is this other idea that the prophetic mantle should pass through his family, almost like a patriarchal order of things, right. or does it pass by whom the Lord chooses through his council and his 12 apostles, right? And so maybe this is also kind of helping them understand that there, there are times when things are done patriarchally, you know, passed down from generation to generation, and then there are other things that are done. And to the Lord, it seems like the higher callings or the higher priesthood is passed on by the Lord deciding, you know. To well, you see, you see examples of that in the Book of Mormon. Where in some instances, yeah, it goes from father to son, to son, to son, to son. The mantle of being prophet. In other instances, it doesn't. Sometimes it's, you know, Mormon, who was a very astute boy. And he was not the descendant of the prophet at the time, but was given the mantle of the records and then was called by God to be the prophet. And it had nothing to do with his ancestry. It had everything to do with he's the right person at this time. And I think that's kind of what these scriptures are saying, because at the same time it's talking about the literal descendants of Aaron. It's also saying, yeah, but guess what? A high priest who's worthy, who's been called, can serve as bishop, right? Whether they are descendants of Aaron or not. It's just kind of like maybe these people have a, a calling separate or a, a unique ability or something like that. Who knows? I, I really don't fully understand why it would be literal descendants of Aaron. But at the, same, at the same time that these people may be called to that, uh, it doesn't have to be a literal descendant of Aaron. It can be anyone who's worthy. And, and I think it, likewise, I think there, with the priesthood, there there is growth that occurs. There there was a time when there were 70s called inside stakes. Yeah. They had a quorum of the 70s in the stakes. And then there are also some, I wouldn't say disputations, but some differing opinions of is a high priest, uh, is that a higher priesthood than the Melchizedek priesthood in, in the offices within each priesthood? Or, you know, and, and there are clarifications and the Lord speaks to these things, you know, and just like the offices within the priesthood are all appendages to the greater priest, you know, and, and things like that. So it's it's interesting because I think the Lord organizes his saints in the best way that they can at the time you know you look at things now how even the organizational the organization of our uh president Hink, i think it was president hinkley or president monson he did quite a bit restructuring of the quorum of the 70s and the presidency of the 70s and the area authorities and the differentiation between a general authority and an area authority and the in the it it's all to organize the work, but ultimately, like the, we are told all the time, the priesthood that a deacon holds is 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 no difference than the Aaronic priesthood that a teacher or a or a priest holds. They just have different offices and different assignments, you know. And and likewise, the priesthood that an elder holds is no different than the priesthood that a high priest holds. They just have different assignments, you know. Right. So, Real quick, I thought it was also interesting going back to verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 2. So 2, 3, and 4, <laughs> um, where he's speaking to Orson Hyde 
and Oliver about taking Oliver with him. I think he's saying, hey, Orson, uh, take Oliver with you just in case, right? Because he's going to be dealing with money and stuff. Okay? Um, but in verse two, it says, and behold, and lo, this is an example. I don't know what that word is, but I'm sure it's an example. <laughs> all those who were ordained unto this priesthood, whose mission is appointed unto them to go forth. So who's been sent on assignment, right? And this is the example unto them, that they shall speak as they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. Now that is such a great responsibility that hmm. you have been given. And with that comes the responsibility that you must be worthy so you can speak with the Spirit, so you can be a conduit to the will and the word and the mind of the Lord and the voice of the Lord, right? I think that's why the priesthood oath and covenant is such a heavy responsibility because one, the Lord is going to trust you, but you also need to be deserving of that. And it's told if you turn away from this covenant, it basically says it would have been better that you've never been born, <laughs> which it's trying to say, if you abuse your station, if you abuse your power, which is natural, which we know the natural man will abuse power. The natural man will gratify their pride and their vain ambition, you know. So to be called and to be given the priesthood and to enter into this covenant with the Lord that I'm going to officiate or do things as if he was the one doing them, mm -hmm. to help others is a very heavy thing. And I wish, I mean, it's the kind of thing that you hear all the time, you know, especially when you're a deacon, when you're a priest. But there comes a time when you start understanding, like, what the Lord is actually entrusting all of us with. That that it's like, holy cow, that's uh, that's pretty serious stuff. Yeah, and that that scripture, there's times, I think, when when we think, are we even capable of doing that? And maybe not 24-7, because you're going to make decisions of your own that are not, what would the Lord do right now, you know? But the point is, I think when you're teaching and when you're in the act of representing him, that you think, how can I best embody what he would do if he were here? How, how would he think about this person? How would he treat this individual? And when you do that, I think... The spirit will be with you and will actually help you to do that. Um, it actually goes hand in hand with the other part of this uh, section towards the end, which is being a parent. <laughs> um, in section in verse 25, and again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion or in any of her stakes which are organized that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and of the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. And I tie those two things together because when being a parent, it can be very disorienting, frustrating, uh, exhausting. And sometimes it can be, you can sit back and wonder at the end of the day, have I done anything worthwhile to help my child progress or am I just scrambling? And we're told to use the Holy Ghost in everything that we do. And this is included in that. If if you ask for help, for guidance, how, how should I approach this problem? My child is struggling with this. We're potty training. We're 
doing math or doing having struggle finding friends in school, you know, whatever it may be. How can I help my child? How can I teach them doctrine that will help them? Um, the spirit can help you do that. The spirit can make it easier. The spirit can help you speak to your child better than you can speak to your child. And I think, well, along those lines, I think the greatest revelation we can always receive is regarding our raising of our kids, because it is not one size fits all. It's not one size fits all. And the doctrine of repentance, when it says teach them not not to understand or teach them to understand the doctrine of repentance, is basically it's more than teach them. Don't do that. Do this. Like it's more than telling them not to do things and to do other things. It's more than telling them. It's the doctrine of repentance is the doctrine of improvement. Not only that, but to be able to teach the doctrine of repentance, we have to understand it ourselves too. We have to be willing to go and learn, read the scriptures, pray, gain a testimony of that so that we can then transmit that to our kids. It's hard to teach something that you don't know or don't practice, right? And so... When it says, you know, it's your responsibility to teach the doctrine of repentance. Well, do you understand it? Are you trying to live it? Yeah. Are you making those improvements? Because it's pretty hard. And guess what? The older kids get, the more they can recognize when you're being a hypocrite. When you start telling them to do stuff, you need to do this, you need to do that, and you should say sorry, and you should do, you should. And they're like, yeah, but you don't do that. And then yeah. there's no respect, <laughs> no trust, right? Uh, that's true. <laughs> that's true no but it's it's funny because i think if we think about sometimes we view repentance as i broke a commandment like a big commandment like i had i broke it and i should wallow in in despair and, and pain which there is that there sure. is breaking big commandments but if you look at the pattern the lord has given us the pattern he's given us is do it daily and do it weekly at least and weekly we're going to do it kind of publicly and solemnly in the altar of the church on the sacrament table and and that is kind of if if i just think to myself if if every week i am evaluating and adjusting it's going to be pretty hard to do a big thing off in left field and it's going to be hard to fall for like satan's poisoning by degrees because in a week, I can get a couple degrees in me, but if I'm honest and true, that Sunday, Sabbath day, I can I can get those degrees out, you know, um, and not let little things become huge things. You know what I mean? Yeah, and on top of that, I think if this is a doctrine of improvement, it isn't just about fixing sins. It's also about getting better at things you're not good at in general. If you're struggling with math, I only say math all the time because that was my biggest struggle in school. Um, if you're struggling with math, don't just say, I'm not good at math. Oh, well, that's just who I am. That's who I'll always be. That's not the gospel. The gospel, the doctrine of Jesus Christ is one of improvement in every way, even in things that might not be directly tied to, you know, the gospel. Uh, math might seem like, what does that have to do with my salvation? Well, the lesson that you're learning there is enduring to the end. It's line upon line, precept upon precept, right? It's these same concepts that can be applied to every other aspect of your life. And so if you're teaching your child the doctrine of repentance, you're teaching them, you are never done getting better. You are never done. You've never peaked, you know? 
you can always do something better. You can always improve. No matter how old you are, how good you are at something, there's always something else you can do to improve. And so, yeah, if you're teaching your children that, um, <laughs> I mean, we're all trying to. <laughs> Sometimes it's harder than other times, but if, if that's what our endeavor is, if we're teaching our children that every time you make a mistake, if you don't get a good grade, well, that's all right. Pick yourself up. What, did, what can you learn from it? How can you improve? You're teaching I, bigger principles. I look, I remember the, the scriptures a long time ago in, about in the book of Revelations where it talks about, you know, I think it's talking about during the millennium how everything will have holiness to the Lord. The bells, the doorways, the doorknobs, the, <laughs> I think there's like even, it was talking about like the tassels on horses and all these things. And I always thought that was kind of ridiculous, you know. Because I, I don't think the Lord is egotistical enough that he wants us to furnish everything to him. But then the, as I've gotten older, I think about that example and I think what I this is just my opinion. Of course, all of this is in my opinion. Uh, it's, um, I think it's the understanding that all things are part of the gospel. Mm-hmm. All things are part of improving and growth. Like you said, it could be math, it could be you know drawing, it could be painting, it could be singing. But the principles that when we are not naturally good at something but want to be, and we have to exercise our agency, organize ourselves, try, try, fail, try, get a little bit better, and eventually become competent at something, is the same thing with the gospel principles. There could be some um, commandments that we have to treat like skills that we have to develop. I'm not good at this. not good at keeping the Sabbath day holy. Okay, what can I do this time to just get a little bit? Oh, you know what? I'm going to set a reminder the day before to remind me tomorrow is the Sabbath day. Or I'm going to read some things. that Like, how much do you want it? Are you thirsting after it? If you're thirsting after it, it's not, you know what? It's just, I just struggle with that. It's, it is what it is, right? If, if you really want it, then you would do something about it. And you can do it gradually. And over time, it can then become a strength where you're like, now, and then you receive a sign from the Lord. That's one of the things in some of these verses, like, you know, then you receive a sign. And that sign is the testimony that now you know, not that you believe that this is a good thing, but now you know that keeping the Sabbath day holy brings blessings. And then it becomes a delight unto you. And it becomes part of your nature. And all these things that the Lord's trying to do is he's doing the biggest change of all time, which is to take something imperfect fallen and make it want to be perfect and strive and grow all these spiritual and physical muscles to to be able to do better. And to me, I tend to think that this will never go away. If if God's God's realm is one eternal realm, <laughs> if, if progression is forever, and even in the Book of Mormon it tells us that God Himself is progressing, then we are not developing something so we can make it to a finish line. We're developing a skill set that we'll use forever. I think that that also goes hand in hand with verse 31. And this one stood out to me because, I don't know, 1831, when did this happen? Yeah, 1831. And here we are in 2021, and a lot of these things still apply. Uh, Now I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion, for there are idlers among them. And their children are also growing up in wickedness. And they also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. These things ought not to be and must be done away from among them. I think this is just human nature. 
right? To want to find a way to do the least possible work and get the most out of it. <laughs> um, but I just see that being so pervasive in society today of nobody wants to put in the work. They want to just kind of get benefit from um, just being who they are. And there are certain individuals that appear to have done that. And so they, they're very wealthy and they seem to not have put in a whole lot of schooling or effort or hard work into it. And so people look at that and say, well, if they can do it, I can do it. I think behind the scenes of some of those people is a heck of a lot of work by a lot of people to make that happen. Um, but I think what the Lord is teaching us here is, regardless, number one, as parents, we can't be idle. We can't give an example of just being lazy, slothful. Find find things to be actively engaged in, anxiously engaged in a good cause, right? And that, that gives an example. It says their children are also growing up in wickedness. I think that's what he's getting at there is when you start behaving that way, um, you give an example that that's okay. And your children don't learn what hard work is. And they still want things because they're not looking at riches of eternity. It says their their eyes are full of greediness. Being greedy and idle at the same time is like a terrible combination because it just brings incredible dissatisfaction in life. You want more and more and more, but you're not willing to work for it. Or you want to not have to do a whole lot, but you want everything given to you. That's 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 not going to bring happiness. It's going to bring a lot of frustration and a lot of anger and disappointment. Remind me a couple of scriptures in the Book of Mormon. Uh, some in Alma chapter 22, where it says, And the more idle part of the Lamanites lived in the wilderness and dwelt in tents. And they were spread throughout the wilderness to the west and to the land of the east. And, and also on the west of the land of Sarahemla in the borders of the seashore. And then in 2 Nephi 5, where it talks, And because of their cursing, which was come upon them, they became an idle people, full of mischief and subtle, subtlety. Which is interesting because it's like being crafty, <laughs> trying to like mince, like mince words, like, you know, and did seek in the wilderness beast of prey, you know, uh, because it's, it seems like in those days it is easier to kill food and eat it than to grow food and cultivate and have like an industry, you know, type of thing. It was, I think that that's interesting because the Lamanites were idle to the point where they always wanted to subjugate the Nephites into some sort of servitude. Right. Be by our strength, pay us. Uh, what do they call it? Um, it wasn't taxes. It was like pay us tribute. Tribute, you know. And and um, and the Nephites were constantly trying to fight to not be in subjugation to them and when they were righteous they did not fall into being subjugated but when they were wicked and they were prideful and thought oh we can handle we don't have to worry about them then they would fall into captivity and in, in to to the nephites which is a which is a metaphor to all parts of our life it could be sin it could be debt it could be a lot of things but this that the lord points this out again to us and in this sense He's not talking, well, he's talking a lot of these, you know, verse 29, where he says, 
and the inhabitants of Zion shall observe the Sabbath day. And that, that phrase where he says, and the inhabitants of Zion should do this, and the inhabitants of Zion should, in 26, I shall give a law to the inhabitants. So he's trying to tell them, okay, you've all agreed you want to be of one heart and one mind <laughs> and be a united people. In order to have that outcome, you should keep the Sabbath day, you should be baptized, you should raise your kids correctly, and you should weed out idleness from within you, I, you know, which to me also is kind of like the example of the building of the Salt Lake Temple, where there were some people that were professional stone cutters, and they brought that trait with them from, from other previous jobs they had done in Europe and, and so forth. There were some that were engineers that could figure out things. There were some that were uh, craftsmen. And then there were others that were just, I'm, I got nothing, but I'm here to help. I can bring water. I can make some food. I can help carry this. When you're going to push, I push. I can pull the wagon, you know, you know. And then I think to myself, I look at the brethren in the quorum and I see men of such high professional acuity. They were very good in their respective fields. Education-wise and professional-wise, they have a lot of really good experience. And I think to myself, how do they get to that? Is it is it part of the doctrine of repentance, the doctrine of progression that was able to help them in all aspects of their life? And are they better suited in their role? Because now the Lord, you have more tools he can use you on because you now have more experiences and you're more, you have more capability, right? So, which I'm trying, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to say be one kind of person over another, but I'm trying to say is, as you develop your talents and you're not idle, you'll be surprised at what the Lord can use you for. And if you feel like that you don't have a very specific talent, just show up and I guarantee you can add a lot of a lot of help. You know, it's kind of like these assignments that we always have. We feel like we have to be special and, and, and it's kind of like he's the Lord's not looking for your capability as much as your availability. Right. But if you have capability and availability, that's even better, right? I think that society kind of wants us to think that the ultimate goal is to reach a point where we don't have to do anything anymore. You know, the whole goal is to either you earn retirement? enough. Yeah, either earn enough money to where you hire a bunch of people and they do all the work for you and you don't have to do anything. Or work long enough and save up enough money that you can retire and not, never have to do anything ever again. And there... Well, that's nice. Um, I think the Lord's saying that's not really the objective. Free up your time from maybe other concerns so that you can focus on doing other things, sure. But don't ever be idle. And usually when people get into trouble, when they start doing things that they shouldn't do, it's because they don't have enough to do. And I think that <laughs> uh, nine times out of ten, if you have a, an assignment or you volunteer for something and you make yourself busy, doing something beneficial, you'll have less likelihood of getting some into problems, you know, into trouble. I, was, I had a question about um, verse 11 and 12 and 70, where it says, Yea, neither the bishop, neither his agent who keeps the Lord's storehouse, neither he who is appointed in the stewardship over the temple, who, who is appointed to administer spiritual things, the same is worthy of his hire, even as those that were appointed to a stewardship to administer in temporary. What is that worthy of his hire? Meaning they should be 
compensated for what they've done or they should be taken care of or you shouldn't begrudge them because you didn't hire them like they're still providing a service as if you would have hired i don't under, i just grammatically or <laughs> whatever i don't understand what it's well i think in verse 12 it's saying that there's a there's a separation between spiritual and temporal he who is appoint, appointed to administer spiritual things the same is worthy of his hire even as those who are appointed to a stewardship to administer in temporal things so I think what, what it's saying is administering to spiritual things and administering to temporal things are just as important. Yeah. It's not not one is more important than the other. Yes, we need to do the spiritual stuff. We also have to take into account that there is temporal need. It's interesting that, that the Aaronic priesthood mostly takes care of temporal things. And the Melchizedek priesthood takes care of spiritual things. But if there aren't any deacons to pass the sacrament or to shovel the snow or collect fast offering, then you have to, like, it's not one is greater than the other, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's not one or the other. It's you need these both these functions to occur. This is the best way in whatever life stage you're in to grow and understand these these functions, because even as a youth, it's very important that you learn how to take care of things, how to be organized, how to do things publicly in reverence you know you know there's many practical things you learn doing your priest of callings even though sometimes you think oh the church just needed an army to to shovel snow and this is we might as well make it the deep no i think the lord since the beginning has said part of being complete and being like he is is there are temporal things you have to be good at and take care of and account for and plan for just like on the trip, you have to have gas. You have to make sure your tires are right. You have to know how to drive. And then the spiritual part is you need to go to a good place and have fun while you're there and, you know, and, and uh, gain knowledge, you know, and, and those things. And it's like you can't do one without the other and one isn't greater than the other. Like that's just the way because I look at it because I sometimes think that we can be tempted to overlook temporal preparation and think, I am so spiritual, I don't need that. Or we stack up in the temporal side and we don't listen to the spirit of the law type of thing, you know, to to the, you know, like it's a, it's kind of a balancing thing between these two ideas of spiritual and temporal. And we know that the earth was created spiritually and then physically, you know, and, and we are here to experience our spiritual body in a physical form you know, and now you have to deal with things like hunger and sleep and health, physical health, you know, and things like that. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing, for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.